I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. And we have a great show planned for this week with yes. some tremendous guests. I know I tend to say that a lot. Well, I think in this case, uh, you know, with most things that I appreciate, they tend to get better the farther they go on. And I would, I would like to say that with the Collins Brothers, I think we've reached a new sort of uh, a new high of sort of intellectual thought, very yeah. clear-headed thinking, but also well, very succinct. Well, that, those are our new guests. Uh, mm-hmm. He's given you a, a taste of our guests for this week are going to be mm-hmm. Philip and Paul Collins, who are the authors of the book The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship, mm-hmm. and also are authors of some of the most challenging information you'll find on the World Wide Web and elsewhere. Yes. Uh, they're very much in demand in a, a number of locations with their writing, and we're going to be talking about dominionism and evangelicalism and the New World Order. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a great show. And uh, this first uh, show that we have, if we're going to find out a little bit about their very interesting background. Yeah, they talk it, quite a, at length about it, but I'm, I think it's important for our listeners to go to know that. I think it's it's yeah. worthy of the of the time they spend on it because they do. They're very schooled. They're very intelligent it, individuals. It sets the background stage of um, of, of what formulated their interest mm-hmm. in getting into these incredibly uh, challenging. Uh, topics that they review with regularity and now yeah. are extremely well known for. And it involves professors and the CIA and all this other stuff. I'm not going to steal their thunder, but uh, it's interesting, but it really just sets the groundwork for the rest of the interviews uh, Tuesday through Thursday of this week mm-hmm. to uh, to hear what they have to share with us. So we're going to uh, take off for that. Do you have any other kind of final comments? Uh, I'm just looking forward to what they're doing. Yeah. Well, I think you're going to really enjoy it. Again, it's Philip and Paul Collins, who are the authors of the book, The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship. And we're going to go away for that interview, and then we'll be back up with a quick wrap-up on Future Quake. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Dr. Future, and welcome back to the Future Quake Show. Uh, Tom and I would like to introduce our guests for this week, Philip and Paul Collins, who are the authors of the book, The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship, also extremely well-known throughout the blogosphere and throughout the Internet with some of their very provocative writings. And we're going to uh, talk today about dominionism, evangelicalism, and the New World Order. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to uh, welcome both of you, uh, Philip and Paul, uh, to uh, being on the Future Quake Show. Hey, thank you so much, Dr. Future. Thanks, Doc. And uh, Tom and I uh, have heard much about you. Uh, We know that you've impressed many people 
who we've had some affiliation with our show. We recently had the, uh, really Gil- really the Gilberts. Yeah, we've really enjoyed some of your writings as well. The, the yeah. Gilberts just uh, just love having you on, mm-hmm. and, and, of course, Tom Horn thinks highly of you. And mm-hmm. uh, you're also listed as columnist with Raiders News Update, uh, one of our favorite sources for news. And uh, it's just a, a real pleasure to have two esteemed individuals yeah. such as yourselves on the Future Quake show, uh, something that's really long overdue. To, to begin our discussion uh, today, could you share with our audience just a little bit about your respective backgrounds and how it led to your current writing activities? Yeah, that'd be fine. Um, this is Paul, by the way. All right. Um, this for me, this uh, kind of study into deep politics and parrot politics um, really began back in the uh, early '90s when uh, I was in Colorado. And I ran with a crowd there that was made up of a lot of anti-authoritarians, a lot of uh, a lot of anarchists. Um, it, it, there was a sizable anarchist crowd in the, in the school population, and uh, and the and cliques were really frowned upon at our school, and, and everybody was pretty close, so you could pretty much find a lot of overlap between groups. And then uh, so I ended up running with a lot of those kids and. And and there was at this time in Colorado a real healthy suspicion of of government, and there was a real individualist mentality, and, and that was true amongst the youth as it was for the adults. And uh, you know, there's while while a lot of those anarchist kids, I didn't really share their views on how society should be arranged. <clears throat> they did point out a lot of legitimate flaws with modern government, and it's interesting to note that at the time Clinton was president and. He wasn't cut any slack by anybody there, whether it was left or right of center. Um, and so, you know, everybody had a sense that something was not quite right, and and that included myself. So I started to read, uh, get my nose into a lot of uh, books that were out there over the topic of deep politics and parapolitics. And, but the, really, the epiphany came for me around 95. In 95, we relocated from uh, Colorado to uh, Ohio, and I started taking classes at a local community college. And it was there that I met uh, a teacher who uh, would go on to be my teacher in uh, both constitutional law and criminal justice, and he was a judge in the area. And when he wasn't uh, working his court, he was putting in his time um, uh, educating uh, younger people, young students in, in the college. That was really what his passion was. And I knew that he had a really interesting background, but I didn't know just how interesting until I was in a class called American Issues, and he started giving a talk in that class. He was an invited speaker at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I had him as a teacher, but he was the invited speaker at this particular class. And he basically went into how he had been a CIA asset during his college days. And really? Then he was re- yeah. Wow. Then he was re-enlisted by the agency when he was in the Marine Corps in Vietnam, and he was supposed to uh, gather intel on the indigenous population. And he had uh, – the, his legend was and, – and the legend is basically trade wrap for your cover that's supposed to hold until you're able to slip away – was that he was a Canadian national who was running a trading post and doing trade with the natives. And his job was to basically get, uh, talk to the people. They, when he asked his handlers what his job was supposed to be, they said, well, you're a nice guy, talk to him. So he he talked to VC and MVA guys that would show up. He'd warm up with them, and then they'd tell him what hills their aunts or uncles or cousins or 
friends, fellow soldiers were located, and then he'd report back to his handlers, and lo and behold, the locations that he reported on ended up being bombed. Hmm. And um, <clears throat> he had a really interesting uh, career over there. He met a, an MVA general and made friends with this, uh, befriended this MVA general, and, and this this general wanted him to go with him to Hanoi. He liked him that much, and he wasn't at all thrilled with the idea, but he ended up saying, well, well, his his agency handler said, well, you know, this is too good of an opportunity to gather intel uh, to, to let slip by, so you're going to do it. So he said, okay, and he went over there, and, didn't, and he it didn't work out too well, he was the only white guy in Hanoi. He didn't feel right. He felt way out of place. A little bit out of really, place, yeah. <laughs> yeah, too stressful to function correctly. So he came back with very poor intel. They were not pleased with him, and somebody in the in the agency ended up uh, blowing his cover to kind of uh, to kind of get vengeance on him for for doing such a poor job. Apparently, you know, which tells you just how you know common. Things like the Valerie, Valerie Plame affair are—it's nothing mm-hmm. new. It's been going on for quite some time, and Intel, the Intel uh, um, business is really, really dangerous, especially when things get politicized, as they did in his case. Well, we get he a lot of complaints a... about poor intelligence on our show too, so yeah, we can but, sort of relate <laughs> yeah, to that. Yeah, not the stories, like what from we're our saying, from but, our listeners. Yeah. 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 Well, he he ended up being in a lot of danger, but his MVA friend got him out of danger. His his general, his MVA general friend got him out of danger, mm-hmm. and and that's why he's alive today. But he ended up teaching me not only about political uh, science issues like constitutional law and um, 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 criminal justice, but he also basically taught me that deep political practices and conspiracy are a reality. They're 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 just concept of of life and so that got me looking a lot more although i really really didn't get too serious until 2001 because my first great love in life was and still is acting in the stage so i uh you know i spent most of my time doing plays until the local theater scene started to dry up around 2001 and uh 9-11 happened and that's when i actually really took off with this and started to engage the topic on a serious level Wow. Um, yeah. So uh, this this is uh, Philip, and uh, I guess uh, my background is is somewhat the same in that uh, I was uh, always uh, very involved in theater and the performing arts, and I I've, I've done uh, several plays and uh, played several roles. Even did one in a, uh, a short film that, uh, or yeah, an independent film that got shelved. Um, but um, my uh my interest in the topic uh began to uh began to really uh become edified when i uh started to uh take communication studies in fact that's what my, one of my majors was in college was uh, communication studies and in particular when you're studying communications uh everybody who's studying communications will invariably come across uh uh media criticism and uh when in the in the subject of media criticism um it's relatively candid uh that uh the media is uh actually somewhat dishonest um most most media critics will will show through a semiotic analysis and semiotics by the way is just the study of signs the study of how signs and symbols 
are used uh, to convey certain messages, to communicate certain themes. Um, but uh, most uh, media critics uh, show through semiotic analysis how through the juxtaposition of images and the accompaniment of certain narratives that uh, the mass media can promulgate specific paradigms that it considers desirable and meanwhile discourage or dissuade others away from certain modes of thought and behavior that they consider undesirable. Um, so right away, um, I started to see that, you know, the uh, the uh, media industry and the entertainment industry was uh, largely devoted to uh, what Noam Chomsky uh, dubbed manufacturing con uh, consent, mm -hmm. which is inherently conspiratorial. Um, at any rate, in the meantime, I was also uh, heavily immersed in my studies of philosophy. In fact, that's what I got my minor in was philosophy. And in studying philosophy, um, I became uh, deeply interested in uh, several uh, several uh, subsets of uh, 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 subtopics of philosophy, namely philosophy of mind um, and uh, uh, also the uh, philosophy concerning science and religion. And uh, I became very uh, interested in what's known as the sociology of scientific thought, which uh, has been pioneered by thinkers such as Thomas Kuhn uh, and Charles Fort, basically holds that scientific paradigms are not formulated in a vacuum. Sociological considerations uh, are actually factored in to the uh, formulation of scientific uh, paradi uh, paradigms. Mm -hmm. So um, I began to see how that related, for instance, to the promulgation of particular scientific theories uh, that uh, certain uh, forms of 20th century totalitarianism were premised on, namely Darwinism. Uh, Darwinism acted, of course, as one of the scientific uh, premises for both uh, Hitlerian fascism and communism. And uh, that led me uh, down the trail of, of seeking out the sociological, the sociological influences that went into uh, the formulation of Darwin's theory. And uh, um, in the course of studying that, I came across several esoteric corners. It led me to uh, such uh, more obscure esoteric corners like Freemasonry, um, into some oligarchical corners uh, such as the, the Huxley dynasty, uh, into uh, eugenical corners such as Herbert Spencer uh, and Harriet Martineau, but um, all this uh, all this again leads back to led back to kind of a conspiratorial undercurrent because uh, for many of these groups, uh, namely for instance Freemasonry, have had a hand in uh, uh, conspiratorial history. For instance, uh, Freemasonry was very prominent in the Enlightenment and then promulgating. Enlightenment ideas, and the Enlightenment had a subversive revolutionary uh, wing that actually uh, led to the uh, uh, the French Revolution, which of course was uh, a bloodbath. Mm -hmm. But um, at any rate, so um, uh, that 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 uh, portion of my uh, ph uh, philosophy studies uh, basically took me on a conspiratorial trajectory. Meanwhile, another philosopher by the name of Michel Foucault, um, in his book Discipline and Punish, um, he uh, basically showed how um, the model of the panopticon, which was developed by uh, Jeremy Bentham, who himself was another Enlightenment thinker, 
that schema has been diffused throughout uh, the social body, the modern social body, and as a result, uh, the carceral system of prison has become a carceral culture, and uh, most of the uh, schema that comprises the uh, prison system have, has now been adapted to the civilian milieu. And th that, that really affirmed uh, more Orwellian contentions, uh, the contentions of, uh, of uh, um, uh, George Orwell in 1984, who again uh, has, been, has uh, something of a conspiratorial background. Hmm. So um, eventually uh, Paul's research and my research, we began to uh, identify certain synchronicities in it, and uh, we just began to uh, synthesize our data, and uh, as a result, we've uh, managed to provide uh, something of a more gestalt um, in terms of, of uh, deep po politics, parapolitics, and conspiratorial research. Mm -hmm. uh, not, 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 to, not to belittle the efforts of others, but in essence, what Paul and I attempt to do, Paul brings the political tangibles and historical tangibles to the table, mm -hmm. and then I provide readers with a conceptual and philosophical uh, mm -hmm. uh, analysis of them. Okay. So you have you have the concretes, and then you have the abstract, and you don't mm -hmm. normally find that with a lot of you know modern conspiratorial research. Mm -hmm. Now. Um are both of you all, you know, when I've seen pictures of you, uh, it looks like you all are pretty close to the same age. Are you all pretty close? We're twins. We're, We're twins. twins. Oh, well, that's, okay. that, that, that uh, agrees with my uh, assumption here. It did not have anything to do with, with transhumanism or biological revolution, did it? Because <laughs> I know we have Dr. Horn on a lot, and I didn't know if you all yeah. were like a test case of the master race or yeah. something. <laughs> you may get asked that a lot. I yeah. don't know. Um, now, I also noticed that you all um, had gotten your first year associate's degree and then later uh, finished your, your bachelor's degree work at about the same time. Were these at the same universities at the same time? Yes, it was. Yes. I know you all took some, um, some diverse fields within the liberal arts studies, uh, but, but basically you all were sort of similar on, on, on camp, same campuses and things like that. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Essentially, yeah. Essentially, I, I this is Philip. I mm -hmm. have a communication studies major and uh, a liberal uh, studies major and a philosophy minor. Mm -hmm. And uh, Paul had uh, well, liberal studies with a political science minor. Yeah. And, so. and you, how long have you all been operating outside of, if I can mention southwestern Ohio, uh, that particular neck of the woods? Well, so it's probably like 95. Yeah, 95. About, about we never intended to stay out here this long, but, you know, it just happened that way. Yeah. Well, you know, that former stomping grounds of uh, Dr. Future was down the road, so there must be something special about that place. I don't I don't like Stonehenge or something. Uh. I, I don't know. <laughs> it birthed something there. It could be those secret military experiments at Wright Pad. Yes. I don't know. That's why you keep trying to get me to drink that water. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the uh, I, and I felt as I understand right, you're a full-time journalist as well, correct? Yes, as as a matter of fact, both of us are. Both of oh, you. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I I work as a staff writer for the uh, Vandalia Drummer. Paul is. Yeah, a, I'm Enan Messenger, New Carlisle Sun, and I'm yeah. also doing some work for Tip City and West Milton Papers. Oh, all fine cities up in that area, and yeah. I hope we have some listeners from that area. I hope you spread the word. There's yeah. a. A lot, of, a lot of fans of Dr. Future up that way, too, and uh, pass on the word that we've got some more favorite sons from that area. Mm -hmm. uh, if I understand correct, uh, you all took the approach of just t doing 
regular academic uh, high-level uh, discourse studies, uh, and in going through this information, it became obvious to you, just studying the literature, that um, what people like to try to characterize and put in a box as conspiracy theories and some of the things you hear talked about on the Internet or shows like ours were, in fact, based by, by good, sound historical data that, that provides a lot of credence to things that we'd only heard whispered about before. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. And we're just we're trying to elevate it to a level because this is a field that's always strove for some legitimacy, and it just doesn't get the uh, the attention or the the, uh, the the you know the serious-minded kind of approach that it deserves. And so you know we wanted to show that on a level of scholarship that it right. makes sense and that it's uh, that it's a legitimate you know a legitimate field. And you're giving it the scholarly rigor that would be. Yeah appropriate and suitable for the subject matter. Oh, yeah. Yes, okay. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I will give you all a suggestion to consider, uh, having read some of your amazing work, is you might want to find some kindred spirits, if there is such a thing, and start mm-hmm. looking at putting some kind of a scholarly journal together that's peer-reviewed that would have an opportunity to start in structured form documenting wow, some of these kind of a, things. that's a great idea. Well, a- actually, we, we were hoping to... Uh, to do something like that in the not too uh, too distant future, our, our friend Michael Corbin, who we were we were primary collaborators with, who basically had the uh, a closer look show out of Cal- Colorado, he passed away just um, recently. I'd say what would it be a month or two ago? Yeah, something like two months ago. And um, we wanted to continue with his. Um, with his um, um, journal, his uh, a closer look report mm-hmm. that he had, the ACL report, and so we'll, we're going to try to do something like that. And um, we we're, we talk a little bit with and, and collaborate a little, little bit with Indira Singh, who was also with uh, on board with Michael as far as the uh, as far as the ACL uh, staff was concerned, and and they both of them. Michael was and Indira is uh, about taking that sort of tact and, and and taking that sort of approach to the to the topic and everything. So so yeah, that's what that's what we hope we hope to do eventually here in the you know not too distant future. Okay, well that's that's something that I would certainly be interested in uh, uh, you know uh, subscribing to. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not sure if I would meet the rigor standards to be able to publish in something like that, but I would certainly like to see. What other people do, particularly yeah, when when they're what's going on. if you get a blue ribbon group to uh, peer review some of these kind of things and then take some of your findings, maybe hold some conferences, release some press releases on on information, you could be providing a a, a wonderful service uh, to your fellow citizens yeah. by being able to, to do that, you know, in a respectable way. Yeah. Um, I'd like to move on to our discussion uh, yeah. for the for the bulk of our interview, and that's on a. Uh, a topic that might be somewhat mysterious or people may misunderstand what it is for for the bulk of our audience uh, typically a traditional uh, evangelical Christian audience that listens to our show although we certainly have a very diverse group that goes way beyond that particularly with our internet audience that we have but this is the uh, this mysterious term dominionism and I was wondering if you gentlemen could explain to us and our our listeners um, what this mysterious term is and uh, can you uh, basically just give us a succinct definition that we can elaborate further on in our discussion uh, regarding sure, this sure. matter? 
Sure. Well, basically, uh, dominionism. Uh, dominionism. Uh, that term was coined uh, by sociologists. And, and by the way, I have misgivings with sociology as a field in and of itself. But they do correctly identify the problems with uh, dominionism. Dominionism is is basically a uh, a variety of pseudo Christianity that distorts uh, Genesis chapter one verse twenty eight. And it uh, basically construes the dominion that God gave man as a purely uh, political dominion. Uh, dominionism basically uh, basically politicizes the gospel, and it marries uh, Christianity to what could be called the cosmos. Cosmos is the original Greek word for world. That's the, the word that Jesus uh, used in uh, John chapter 18, verse 36, when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He, in the original Greek, he said, my kingdom is not of this cosmos. And cosmos connotes uh, an arrangement or a system, an order or government. And so essentially what Jesus was uh, expressing derision with was not the physical world, as some Gnostics would have you believe, but he was expressing derision with the political systems that had come to govern, govern it. And what dominionism does is it actually, uh, it actually grafts Christianity onto the cosmos, and as a result, uh, Christianity becomes part and parcel of uh, secular, uh, secular institutions. And the problem with that is once Christianity is wedded to secularism, Christianity will basically adopt all the anthropocentric uh, characteristics of uh, secularism. And one of the uh, anthropocentric premises that pervades uh, secular, uh, secularism and comes to pervade uh, dominionist uh, theology is the notion that man must save himself. And in that sense, mm. it's a form of Gnosticism because Gnosticism, that's one of its key uh, precepts, that man must save himself. And this becomes evident in the Gnostics, uh, or the dominionist uh, mandate for a man to build the kingdom of God here and now. The kingdom of God was not uh, a kingdom that was, uh, as you know, uh, a kingdom that was to be instantiated by the hand of man. It's a kingdom that was to be instantiated by the, uh, by the hand of God. However, for the dominionist, the kingdom of God just cannot be instantiated until uh, Christians essentially uh, hold a violent political coup. And so, essentially, what it does is it, 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 it pays credence to the, uh, the anthropocentric uh, premises of secularism that man must save himself. Because, after all, if you look at the second coming of Jesus as the final installment in our the final installment in our salvation, then man is facilitating that salvation. And in this sense, it's, it, the, it, dominionism really isn't genuine Christianity. It's just Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. And this kind of, this kind of uh, religious engineering of, of, uh, re of different uh, groups of the, of the Abrahamic faith has, has gone on clear across the board with, with, uh, with the Christians, the, the neo-Gnostics are the dominionists, with the uh, Islamic peoples, the, uh, um, the, 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 the Wahhabists are the neo-Gnostics with their belief, uh, that where they actually, uh, fiscal, fiscalize and, uh, secularize the sixth pillar of faith, the holy mm -hmm. war, and change it from, from being a spiritual fight to being an actual literal 
military confrontation, and it, it even happened, unfortunately, with the, with um, the uh, the world of Judaism, with uh, groups like uh, Jakob Frank of uh, the Frankists, who was a certain strain of Sabbatean uh, Jewish heretical. Uh, thought that basically held that the Messiah would not come back until people became either uh, thoroughly uh, saints or the environment was thoroughly corrupted and they became thoroughly sinners, one way or the other. You know, but mm. but you were going to have to uh, you were going to have to engage in some kind of activism to cause that kind of meeting of 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 the of um the the kingdom with with earth. So if I understood you correctly, uh one could view dominionism in a Christian sphere as a type of Christian Wahhabism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, that's that's a provocative uh hmm. term that I'm sure getting a lot of our listeners uh some pause. That's very uh, sure. Uh when when they think about that. You know, I was trying to um and we're going to get into some of the details about the, the dominionism in, in the, the bulk of our interview here. But I, I was I was trying to think of a scriptural analogy, and I know this is very very simplistic uh, and doesn't really embrace it. But it seemed like to me there's almost a, a relationship here uh, at the time of Christ's crucifixion when the religious people, uh, led on by their leadership and actually were spurred on by them, chose Barabbas who was a zealot that wanted to overthrow the secular government by yes. force, and they chose him over Jesus, who yes. was speaking about the the kingdom of heaven. Yes. Is that basically what dominionists are doing today? Is they're choosing that, Barabbas over Christ? That's exactly what they're doing, and in, and in doing so, they're being transformed into a, a Gnostic sect, which, interestingly, St. John referred to as the spirit of Antichrist in his letters. He said that Gnosticism was the spirit of Antichrist. And if you look back to when the people chose Barabbas over Jesus, the name Barabbas uh, means son of his father. Well, if uh, Jesus Christ was the son of his father and his father was God, then you can only imagine whose son the people were choosing back then, and, and so you know. Wow. So, so the Pharisees, the Pharisees were just picking one of their brothers because Jesus exactly. already said their father was the devil. Yes. Exactly. Wow. So they they were choosing the Antichrist back then, and the Dominionists are unwittingly choosing the Antichrist by becoming Gnostics who who contain the spirit of Antichrist. Another good example, some theologians uh, postulate that uh, one of the reasons for uh, Judas's betrayal of Jesus, that Judas was hoping that Jesus was going to instantiate a political regime. Um, and interestingly enough, one of the things that, uh, Ju- that Jesus uh, did to identify his uh, his betrayer, Judas, was he took a piece of bread and he, he dipped it into sauce and he said, now whomever I give this to, he will be the traitor. Notice that Jesus uh, earlier used the symbol for his own body. Now he takes the bread, which represents him, and he, add, he, he places it in sauce. He adds something to it. Essentially, and, and if, if these theologians are correct about uh, Judas, and that Judas was, in fact, uh, a, a, a radical zealot, zealot who uh, was hoping that Jesus would turn out to be some sort of political insurrectionist, essentially what uh, Judas was doing was symbolically represented through what Jesus demonstrated. He took the body of Christ, he took the doctrine of Christ, and he added something to it. He, and this, this, this hmm. is essentially what dominionism does. It's this 
ugly concretion uh, where it basically adapts more Jacobin Enlightenment revolutionary features to, and grafts it onto uh, uh, grafts it onto uh, Christianity and thus politicizes the gospel and transforms Christianity into what Paul and I call uh, a sect of neo-Gnostic jihadists. Well, it's very interesting wow. to take your th- th- those last comments you just made and, and think about them in light of Chris Pinto's work. Uh, in the New Atlantis and in Riddles and Stone and, and his research on the Enlightenment and the work of those secret societies at that time in the founding of our own country. I found it very consistent with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we go into to the details of Dominionism, and I, I know that you can go into extreme detail, uh, which is great, um, but I, I'd like to just, uh, b- before people misunderstand, you make it very clear in your writings that you are not recommending that Christians completely uh, disengage from society and not care about society issues or not be activists of any kind of form. It's really the nature of how they react to society rather than uh, whether they're involved or engaged or not, correct? And, and yeah, absolutely. So could, could you share what, the, what you understand the Bible says regarding how Christians should relate to societal issues and to civil government? Yeah, the way that the Bible addresses civil government is best found in the Old Testament with 1 Samuel chapter 8. Hmm. Um, um, if you notice the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments made no provision for a king. As a matter of fact, the, the, a king can be seen as just a human god, and the First Commandment says that you won't have any other gods before me. In, 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 in 1 Samuel chapter 8, what we find out is that God does not did not want the, uh, the the nation of Israel. He did not want the Israelites to be ruled by a king. He he made no provision for a king in the law of Moses, and he wanted people to be responsible individuals that practice responsibility. But they were but they were fairly insistent on having the king. They looked around at the nations around them and got earthly minded, and wanted to have what everybody else had, which was which was a monarchy, and it made Samuel angry. And in Samuel uh, chapter 8, um, um, verse 5, they say, they say, make us a king to judge us like, uh, like all the uh, nations. And then uh, verse 7 through uh, 17, God tells Samuel, he says, you know, to paraphrase, um, well, you know, don't, don't get upset about, about this. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So let them have a king, and here's... And here's what that king will be like. That king will basically take their vineyards, their olive yards, their the best of them, and give um, and give all of that to to their to um, his servants. And is that, all those, is that imminent imminent domain and yeah, turning it over exactly. to their turning it over to their own corporate <laughs> their own corporate backers, basically turning the land over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he he says, well, you know. Basically, they can have a king, and he'll be very authoritarian in nature. But you, but if you'll notice, it was always it, it was uh, God's original desire for them not to have a king, and that's where America basically uh, was distinct and different from the other uh, nations in the world. That it, it you know they the founding fathers wanted us to return to that model where. Where instead of having a king, people would be responsible individuals, and uh, yeah, and essentially look to a transcendent moral law, an objective transcendent moral law that 
overarches uh, all governments and all political systems. Yeah. Even the deist amongst the uh, founding fathers felt that way. Yeah, and in this sense, the, what the founding fathers were instantiating wasn't a theocracy. It was, it was a republic with a theocentric premise. And by theocentric, I mean a, a, a God-centered premise. Mm. And, and by God, we're, we're talking about the ultimate principle uh, from which we drive all transcendent moral values. And that, that's from which we derive the term uh, republic, which is what we have, a constitutional republic. It's res publica. Publica, the public, res thing, the public thing, the law. The law is an objective, transcendent moral law that is derived from an objective, transcendent uh, moral creator. Hmm. So, uh, so our founding fathers actually, rather than being embarrassed by having a minimalist government, they reveled in it. Whereas uh, uh, groups in Europe, I would assume, uh, took great pride in the the power and the the breadth of the regime of various kingdoms in Europe. In our own country, we reveled the fact that the individual was king, uh, yeah. as they reported to God. Uh, mm-hmm. Under yeah. under the voluntary, non-coercive kingship under God, and our founding fathers had the wisdom to recognize uh, the kingship of God as giving the basis for civil government without getting down into the weeds of of details of theology that would just serve to divide the public further. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, the whole thing, the whole tradition, the anti-statist, anti-militarist state, um, tradition that we find in America started with none other than George Washington because uh, there were those who wanted to basically give him a title of nobility and he refused it mm-hmm. right there and so he flatly uh de- he flatly destroyed any uh any beginning uh of of a of a status or militarist uh, tradition mm-hmm. for America and started the foundation off as being actually anti status and anti militarist. So yes. so back to I'm sorry. I was just oh, gonna say oh, no. back well, to our question it, mm-hmm. uh about how how does this relate to how Christians should respond to civil government. Sure. Can you give us some details on on, on to do's that yeah. scripture has and and what some of your uh thoughts have been on that? Well, I think it's really simple in that first off, do not consider uh do not consider politics and do not consider government your the source of your salvation and uh that's what uh, you find a lot of uh, evangelicals have done a lot of evangelicals have relocated the source of their salvation within political affiliations, and that's just simply not that's that that's just simply not proportionate with reality. The fact of the matter is is that that uh, the Republican Party is not Jesus's party. The Republican Party, I mean, the the uh, you probably heard uh, people have uh, called the GOP God's own party. <laughs> that's not yeah, that's not the that's, case. That's silly. A good a good many of the uh, principles and a good many of the of the. Uh, a good many of the uh, doctrines that are promoted by the Republican Party are antithetical to uh, uh, to Christianity, and mm-hmm. that, that meanwhile it's it's much the same with uh, uh, with uh, the Democrats. Correct. The, right. So what what Christians have to do is they have to divorce themselves from political affiliations and uh, understand that that these are not the source of their salvation. And they have to make their their uh, decisions in terms of voting and in terms of, of uh, decisions regarding politics, 
they have to make them purely based upon biblical precepts and not party uh, partisan uh, partisan uh, uh, affiliations. If, if if Christians make sure that the Constitution is upheld, then they are doing what the best thing that they can do because it's the Constitution that is that that already basically recognizes biblical principles. It, it's it's mm-hmm. based on the biblical notion of Amago Viva uh, Dei, the, uh, the idea that man is created in the image of God. That's already in there, and so if they make sure that the Constitution is upheld, then they are doing what really what they should do. What they should do. But when when the when the candidates that cater to them and they begin to back start to take on an almost messianic character to them, then you know that they're that that they're on a dangerous trajectory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just you want to avoid partisan affiliations because essentially what you become ensnared in is a Hegelian dialectic. And as anybody who understands Hegelian dialectics can tell you the polar extremes that constitute a Hegelian dialectic, the, the thesis and the antithesis, uh, share certain core uh, commonalities which make them capable of being synthesized. Right. Mm-hmm. And so essentially, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it becomes a game of pick your poison. Which do you want? Do you want hemlock or strychnine? Uh, I guess that the best way to answer the question is take a specific case. For a, a good a good case would be um, um, based, uh, homosexual marriage. I think that we can all agree that that's wrong to give that institution over to that particular uh, uh, sect of the population. It's 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 a strictly heterosexual uh, uh, institution and. and We'd be going off in the wrong direction. Well, what some people wanted to do was actually uh, create a, a new amendment to the Constitution that would recognize marriage as as being a, um, uh, a between a man and a woman, and that's the wrong direction to go in because that's basically saying that the uh, uh, that the entity known as government has the ability to. Uh, define and control the institution of marriage, which it, it has no right to be in that sphere. Well, let me agree uh, with you 100% on that. That is the same position that I've tried to explain to other believers, is that we diminish the kingdom of God by taking things of God and voluntarily yeah. giving them to the state to be an exactly. arbiter over. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Marriage is so sacred that heaven forbid that the state should get their dirty hands on making these kind of decisions, it only exactly. should be, desi- be be defined by the by the kingdom of God. And, and we make many of our own problems in the church yeah. when we decide it, it, to make something literally a political issue. Yeah. Uh, suddenly, then the state has to has to rule on this based upon uh, a position that's fair to all citizens, including those that who don't agree with us. When, when the whole issue could be avoided entirely by uh, taking institutions such as marriage and keeping it an issue of the church and take keeping it out of the state. Yeah. Well, all that the, all, if they if they want if uh, Christians want to keep marriage out of the hands of the uh, radical homosexual groups out there because it's not all homosexuals, it's mo- it's mostly just these uh r- groups these homosexual groups that actually act almost like revolutionary cells much the same way that mm-hmm. that we found uh, in the in the, in uh, countries that were taken over by uh like like uh, R- Russia when it fell under the Soviet Union it's these 
it's these radical revolutionary homosexual groups that want marriage. Um, the way that we keep it out of their hands is simply by looking to the Constitution and upholding the Constitution. What does the Constitution say? Hmm. Well, it says that the uh, that Congress <clears throat> basically uh, set up these courts, and so Congress has the right to regulate uh, regulate these courts, and they have the right to do away with these courts if they if they no longer uh, meet the public interest. So these activist judges that are you know trying to work to get marriage uh, handed over to uh, to the homosexual population. They have the right to regulate them. They have the right to also not only rein them in, but do away with the with with their courts, with with the courts of these activist judges, if they if they continue mm-hmm. to step out of line. So it already the the mechanism to correcting the problem already exists mm-hmm. within the Constitution. I will so, give you another example too. Uh, if there are unjust laws that are formed, my understanding through the principle of jury nullification, a jury of peers, citizen peers can actually declare a law null and void if they determine it to be unjust. Even, really? Even though they're not allowed to be briefed on it in court. A judge is not allowed to tell them they have that inherent right, but if they exercise that right as a jury, a jury is, is held, uh, and uh, one of our friends, uh, Robert Hyde, here on the show, has, has got me started to looking into this area, and I did some reading it, and in fact it's a well-established principle of English law that uh, a jury is is considered the highest form of um, of the, the courts, basically you could say, in adjudicating, and and they have a right to trump that. But our citizenry is not uh, educated enough to understand that these things are at their disposal. Nope, they haven't read the Constitution or the Bill of Rights any more than they've read the Bible. Well, so. if I, if I could summarize something here, so we so we can move on uh, on this. What it sounds like to me is that um, a Christian. Uh, trying to get their arms around this and their uh, their position as a, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven while also an ambassador uh, here on earth uh, has a situation with civil government where civil government probably is best used when it's considered as a necessary evil for mundane tasks like taking out the garbage and other kind of things that all citizens have an equal stake in, in making sure that they're addressed but mm-hmm. the the minimal amount that you can put, particularly on a federal government, to be able to manage, the more likely everyone else is is going to be adequately represented and happy. And you know, I, I think about something like a volunteer fire department. You know, you can have the citizens of a community get together and decide it's in their interest for everyone to volunteer to look after each other one's homes. And I, to me, that's a form of government at its at its best. When you, yeah. when you have a lot of motivated citizens say they have a, a common stake, whether it's national defense or a, or a local volunteer fire department. As a Christian, I think it, it is great, and this is just one example I propose, to be involved in something like that, like a volunteer fire department. You don't have to go in there and argue with every fellow fireman on what their religious affiliation is, what their stand is on every doctrinal issue. You just have to fight the fire. You are busy going and fighting fires. You have people who are in mortal danger immediately. You can fight the fire. Now, if if you decide that if you are the one of the most faithful 
uh, firefighters, you were the faithful showing up, you, you, you risk your lives to save your fellow citizens. Your citizens are going to ask you, what's special about you? What is right. so special that you're willing to do that? And then you have opportunities to minister and to share the gospel to these people after you've right. earned their respect. And you, you have already shown that you're looking out for their best interest. I yeah. would think when, our, when, when Christians are involved in, in civil issues or various forms of civil rights or things, once we've shown and earned the trust of, of people outside the household of faith that we are looking out for their best interest and legitimately care about them and not exploiting them, they are much more open to hear about the good news that we have to share. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you have to show your faith in action. I believe yeah. it was uh, uh, St. Francis of Assisi who said, uh, share the gospel whenever possible and whenever possible, uh, do so without words. Right. Um, right. Or whenever possible, use words. But <laughs> yeah. it, 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 essentially, essentially, the point being that um, preaching to people is kind of a useless endeavor, but if they see you tangibly enacting biblical precepts, that gesticulates back towards a genuine faith, a genuine belief, mm-hmm. and not just simply another religion. Mm-hmm. And that's what people need to see. They need to see something that has transformative power in their lives. And they're not going to see that with people attempting to legislate the morality. They're not they're just they're not going to see it. In fact they'll they'll resent it and rightfully so. But the reason that people don't have the proper balance between civil government and their faith nowadays is because of illiteracy in uh in two different Area so illiteracy as far as the scripture is concerned, and illiteracy as far as the uh, as the freedom documents go, and uh, you know that's just that's that's a reality. They usually leave it up to a to a pastor or a minister to explain the scriptures to them, and then they leave it up to a quote unquote legal expert on Fox News or CNN or wherever to basically tell them uh, what what the ins and outs of the Constitution. Are. You know, it goes back to uh, what if you uh, go back to the time of the Kennedy assassination, you know, and uh, you read those, the, you read what the Warren Commission found. Um, they they basically you, you look and you see that in the doc the their investigation you see that Oswald did not, mm-hmm. you know, was not guilty. But you know, it didn't really worry Alan Dulles, who was hit, hit, was a major spearhead in that commission. It, it didn't worry him at all that that they did not prove Oswald's guilt. He just he, he shrugged it off and said, "People don't read." And you know, well, so the same principle. Right. Yeah, right. yeah the same principle. True. Yeah, the same principle applies here entirely. Well, he'd be shaking in his boots today if he knew Future Quake was on the air. <laughs> he'd have some second th- he'd have some second thoughts about that right yeah. now. Well, we have talked about some of the um, ideals, and I'm glad that we put that up front so people don't misunderstand us for the yes. remainder of the interview. Uh, and, and and one closing thought I have that, that to me is a biblical example of what you're expressing. Um, you mentioned the time when the people wanted a king. Uh, just before that, during the time of the judges, which is what God had instituted when they entered the promised land. You had sort of the ultimate type of uh, libertarian small government environment where basically you had small local tribes that dealt with common everyday matters, and they did not address things from a large federal stake unless a crisis emerged. The Midianites invaded or surrounding tribes, and then they formed an ad hoc group of people who had common stakeholder concerns. They went and addressed the issue in God's power, and then they went back to their homes and their fields. 
And that seemed to me yeah. to be a pattern, at least in the fallen earth that we're in before we have the righteous king that comes. That was the, the model that God set in the meantime for us to have a very decentralized living environment. Uh, you know, he will call us together to meet a, an immediate threat, and then we, mm-hmm. we disperse again. And they chose to reject that, and uh, they sort of got star-crossed by seeing the ornate robes and the other tribes and surrounding them and their king. And, boy, they sure looked good on camera. Why can't yeah. we have something like that? <laughs> and, on camera. <laughs> you know, it's, am- it's amazing that God says, you know, one of the first things he says, you know, they're going to tax you a lot. God was concerned about taxes. He said they're going to tax you heavily. Uh, you know, when you mentioned certain things, they're go- we're going to conscript. They're going to conscript your kids. They're going to send them off to fight in foreign wars. Are you sure this is what you want to do? So God very clearly understood what the ramifications of what now is the modern state of what we deal with. Yeah. But I, but I want to talk about back back to on our dominionism topic here. This this really gets down in the in the weeds a little bit. Um, but this really shows uh, at least some of the depth of what you've done, and I know you can only scratch a surface in your research, about how dominionism philosophy relates to the Enlightenment. You may even need to define the Enlightenment for some of our listeners. Uh, the whole concept of Enlightenment regarding Lucifer and, and even a little bit of Freemasonry, where that ties in. Sure. Well, um, the, the Enlightenment was basically the came out of 30-year wars, and uh, I guess, you know, on the most simplest level, it appeared to be a uh, very radical uh, atheistic movement, and uh, basically uh, it redirected uh, society down an atheistic, uh, deistic uh, form of governance. Uh, It was an anthropocentric uh, religion because it uh, placed man at the center of all things. It uh, basically held in reverence uh, the the Protagorean uh, dictum that man is the measure of all things, and thus man establishes his own moral precepts. But um, the Enlightenment had some uh, very distinct Gnostic trappings, um, and those were demonstrable, for instance, in... uh, the uh, doctrines of uh, one Condorcet, who was a philosopher and an Enlightenment thinker, he uh, basically uh, believed that uh, utopia was on the horizon and that indefinite progress, scientific uh, and uh, technological pro- uh, progress, would facilitate a sort of natural salvation where there would be uh, consistent uh, abundance and uh, eventually immortality for mankind. Well, Condorcet's doctrine of natural salvation merely reiterated uh, the Gnostic doctrine of self-salvation. The Enlightenment also shared Gnosticism's uh, veneration of uh, God's chief opponent, uh, the devil. Um, In the hypostasis of the Archons, which was an ancient Egyptian Gnostic text, um, the serpent in Eden was uh, caricatured as humanity's a benevolent instructor and an incognito savior. Meanwhile, uh, God, Jehovah, was caricatured as the uh, quote-unquote archon of arrogance who was fettering man with superstition, uh, uh, who was binding man down from real true knowledge. And uh, true salvation was to be had through gnosis, which was knowing, which was knowledge, which was the uh, basically the cognitive powers of man uh, actually empowered and made the chief facilitator of his own uh, salvation. And um, um, you see the Enlightenment's uh, veneration of uh, the devil 
with uh, the publication of, uh, of uh, Diderot's uh, Encyclopedia. Um, I believe it was in 1751, uh, Diderot published the Encyclopedia, which was considered the Bible of the Enlightenment. And um, the, in the Encyclopedia, there was a drawing of uh, Lucifer, and um, also uh, it, it, he, that drawing was accompanied by uh, Masonic symbols of the square and the compass. And um, it also bore the imprints of uh, Montesquieu, Rousseau, uh, Buffoon, Turgot, and uh, Voltaire, and uh, some of those individuals were actually Freemasons, and that's because this this veneration for uh, the devil under his original angelic appellation of Lucifer was a uh, actual hallmark of uh, Freemasonry at the time, and several of those individuals were Freemasons. Now, this is what's known as Luciferianism, and it, it has to be distinguished from your, car, uh, your, you know, your common variety, garden variety of uh, Satanism. The Luciferian does not revere uh, Satan as a literal metaphysical entity. He reveres uh, Lucifer as a symbol for the cognitive powers of man uh, and man's ability to achieve apotheosis, that is, to become God. And uh, this was a belief that was was very much uh, prevalent within the Freemasonic Lodge at the time, and uh, it eventually it was it, it made its way it was uh, disseminated from the uh, uh, from from the halls of Freemasonry on the popular level. Well, can I ask as, you something on this? Sure. Uh, you you mentioned uh, and, and that's an important point you make. They, they saw Lucifer. As, as symbolic, if yeah. I could, could do becoming God, do they refer to that based upon Lucifer's claim in Scripture when he says, I will ascend upon the holy mountain, I will be like the most high God, and they take that goal and place it upon man, that they take Lucifer's goal upon himself? Yeah, essentially what they did was they, they, they reconceptualized Lucifer, the devil, as uh, instead of a, as an object of faith, as a spiritual entity, as purely an, an object of immanent experience. And by immanent, I'm invoking that term from the Latin term in manere, which means to remain within. To remain within what? Remain within the ontological confines of the physical universe. So Lucifer becomes a purely physical force, a purely immanent force channeling itself through man. And essentially, it represents man's abilities to, to, to achieve apotheosis through his own reason. And reason, they spelled reason with a capital R because they virtually deified it because reason is the province of the human mind and the human mind is the facilitator of man's salvation. And again, this, is all, this all uh, finds its origins with Gnosticism. The, the Gnostic concept of uh, self-salvation, and also the Gnostic uh, veneration of uh, the devil, of uh, God's chief adversary. And uh, like uh, the Gnostics, the uh, Enlightenment thinkers absolutely uh, derided, despised uh, Jehovah God. Now, um, they, they, of course, claimed that he did not exist, or that if there were a God, it was a purely immanent God, an impersonal architect of the, a great architect of the universe that was embodied within nature, much the same way that uh, God was uh, caricatured by uh, 
uh, Spinoza. And again, this is a purely Gnostic uh, uh, view of God as well, because essentially the Gnostics were never um, never quite satisfied with what's known as cognitio fidei, that is the cognition of faith. They wanted to draw the transcendent within to firmer the firmer grip of man, within to the existence of man, and so they relocated and transplanted these transcendent concepts within the ontological confines of the physical universe. See, this is how it relates to dominionism, because dominionism does much the same thing with the kingdom of God. The dominionist mandate to basically build the kingdom of God here and now, and uh, man embodies the march of God here on earth. That's essentially what's known as emanatizing the eschaton. That's a term that was invoked first by Eric Voeglin. That's, that's where you take the, the eschaton, the end of days, and you reconceptualize it as a purely emanant event. It's it's completely devoid of all its spiritual quali- qualities. It now becomes something that is purely instantiated within the ontological confines of the physical universe, and there is no transcendent reality to it. And that's how dominionism relates to uh, to uh, the Enlightenment is these Gnostic uh, this continuity of Gnostic thought between the two. Well, we're going to talk later about. Uh, some figures, even well-known figures within evangelical Christianity that have been connected to dominionism. Sometimes they don't like that term, but they really stand for the principles. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure many of them would be extremely embarrassed to have people know that there is a connection to Gnosticism that really explains the overarching principles. I would bet they haven't even bothered to, you know, to... To consider those sort of mm-hmm. connections. Of course, they they may think the same thing as Dulles and say that Christians don't read either. Yeah, and, <laughs> and <laughs> that may be true. Heaven heaven forbid that that unfortunately uh, may be true. So um, so basically, it's a like you say an anthropocentric or man centered uh, belief system that right. it relies on us and in fact it can be rationalized as being very very virtuous that we have a sense and a call and a duty. Uh, to bring these things about, and, and people can take Bible verses and things like that and try to put together a theology to justify uh, the requirement for our striving to bring about the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And right. I, I, I would I would tend to think that that uh, there are earlier embodiments, not only just with the evangelicals who I pick on, even within Catholicism and other groups, that this would have some relationship to things like amillennialism, and other things like that, whether it's the church universal and triumphant or individuals, uh, one way or the other, trying to, trying to bring the kingdom of God here on earth, either to run it ourselves or to hand the keys over to Jesus when he shows up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, well, again, I, like I said at, earlier on, um, you find this kind of uh, stream of thought in all of the Abrahamic faiths. Uh, I mean, uh, with, with the... Uh, with the uh, with the with the Judaism, um, unfortunately, you had um, the, the Sabbateans who, and and one of the Sabbatean sects um, known as um, as the Frankists, who were who were followers of Jakob Frank, who who basically said the Messiah is not coming back until we until we take upon ourselves some kind of activism and we either make the world completely saintly or completely corrupt one or the two but mm-hmm. that's the only way that we'll see the uh, the the uh, um the the messiah return 
and um, as a result, we we see this subversion on the on the part of of this particular sect of Judaism, um, and and a lot of um, uh, a lot of intersections between them and the and the Jacobins who were Illuminist bred in in. Uh, who basically were the more violent sect of 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 the of the revolutionaries, the most violent sect of revolutionaries in in France, and and you know so so we we have that same kind of trend throughout history, and and when you have that kind of pattern suggest over and over again, it's it's suggestive that there has been basically a uh, a, a a a plan a ugly a script followed mm-hmm. by the power elite to to uh, turn religions into in, in, to empty of them of all their substance and to make them vehicles for uh, for an economic or a social or, or political or all th- or all three um, agenda of some sort. Well, it's very interesting when you use this uh, uh, comparison of talking about the Enlightenment and the role of the Jacobins in the French Revolution uh, in being in a, uh, basically an, an uh, expression of dominionism uh, in that context and it makes me really pause when I think about well-meaning evangelical Christians who've been pulled into dominionism and what will happen then because of Jacobinism and what happened in the French Revolution is any pattern for the future what little I know uh, in my studies of that revolution I see a pattern that's the most clear-cut of what we see as the last days Antichrist reign that I know of, of any uh, historical, because when you, you look at just the few things, that the major things we know uh, in our history books, they changed the times and the seasons. They, they tried to take uh, religious context out of uh, any kind of holiday celebration. They changed the calendars. They even uh, changed the days of the week. Um, it that, sounds very much almost like the Pharisees. They you know, they killed. Like you could yeah. be describing the Pharisees. They killed the religious leaders. They hauled them out. Killed them first. They set up their own god that they can control. Uh, I believe uh, her name was uh, what was it uh, Liberty? Was that uh, the goddess it, Liberty? I think it was. I think it was Athena. Uh, okay, it, but 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 yeah. they would refer to her by various names like Liberty. But basically, it was that right. embodiment. Mm-hmm. So they did all these things that we see are prophesied of of the last days world government. And it was done under the Jacobins, under this reign of dominionism, of which some of our religious people may be unwittingly assisting them with. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, if you look back to the anarchist uh, Prince Kropotkin back in 1908, he said that um, that the uh, French Revolution was the source and origin of all the communist, anarchist, and socialist conceptions, and that um, what 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 modern socialism and, and what the revolutionary move, movement of of the modern time had done was just systematize those ideas and and found arguments in their favor. And and uh, um, if you look at Goebbels, you know the infamous Nazi, he he praised uh, the French Revolution and. Uh, Hitler saw the Nazi re- revolt as, in his own words, the counterpart of the French mm. Revolution. So, wow. I mean that that was the that was the model established for for you know the and, and that's been followed and recycled again and again right up to the present day with our power elite. That's mm. exactly the same model that Essentially, they. Essentially, all that dominionism is is it's a Jacobinism, given a theistic gloss. And interestingly mm. enough. Um, the uh, uh, many dominionists have aligned themselves with none other than the neoconservatives, who several uh, uh, individuals have uh, identified as 
uh, direct ideological heirs of the uh, Jacobins. Um, there is an excellent book by Kleist G. Rintz where, uh, called America the Virtuous, where he uh, basically shows the parallels between neoconservativism and, ja and Jacobinism. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, uh, Lawrence Wilkerson, who um, helped... Uh, 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 I believe it was uh, Colin, Powell. Colin Powell assembled the highly politicized dossier on uh, Iraq later on said when he was asked about the uh, neoconservatives he said well they're not conservatives they're not new conservatives they're basically Jacobins they're, they're, they're the inheritors of Maximilian Robespierre's uh, tradition yeah mm -hmm. and so essentially when the Dominionists align themselves with individuals like the neoconservatives then they are basically marrying Christianity to uh, in the, to enlightenment, to the enlightenment tradition, and to the violent uh, uh, revolutionary, uh, the revolutionary wing of the enlightenment, Jacobinism. Now, wasn't this alluded to? Not completely. And in fact, I haven't read the book yet. I just got it. Fire in the Hearts of Men by our current. You got that? I got really? it. Our current, oh, you better read it quick. Cause I want to read it. <laughs> our current librarian of Congress, who actually alludes to uh, these, uh, well, he calls them occult societies. Uh, in uh, Western Europe that actually formed the foundation alongside the enlightenment of, of even the founding of our country. But he admits these very, very same things uh, in the book. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting that a lot of his phraseology is quoted verbatim in speeches by George W. Bush. Absolutely. Exactly. Fire in the Minds of Men by, uh, by um, um, James, James, Bill Bill yeah, yeah. James Billington. Um, and and we, we've heard the president actually use the term fire in the minds of men, not that he himself probably knows what that means. Uh -huh. I, I see him by and large just merely a figurehead. And that's the way it works in the, in, in the uh, deep political world is that uh, presidents and heads of states are really nothing more than branch managers, and it's somebody else that's basically guiding things right. behind the scenes. The scene. handlers take it, and that's and that's not just a, a dish against Bush. That's true for most of the presidents, correct? Right, absolutely. Right, <laughs> right. But he used the term. He used the term "fire in the minds of men," and I don't think he knows or can appreciate what that. Which term. is a conspicuous allusion to Dostoevsky's. Uh, uh, what uh, Dostoevsky uh, calls the revolutionary faith of the uh, socialist revolutionaries of that time. And, that, and that's essentially what you see uh, being uh, mobilized through the uh, Bush administration, through this presidency. You see kind of this, this uh, radical, violent socialist revolutionary movement under the guise of the... Uh, Neoconservative. Yeah, the neoconservative. Now, don't they call it spreading democracy? Isn't that the yeah, term? Yeah, the global democratic <laughs> revolution, which is essentially just uh, Trotsky's fourth international. And and most people most people don't recognize this because they have come to see a lot of the uh, neoconservative uh, movers and shakers as anti-communist. But it would be wrong to characterize them as anti-communist. They're more properly uh, anti-Stalinist. Is what they. I mean, they they were they were Trotskyists who basically thought that the Soviet Union was abandoning the cause of communism, and and so um, um, they they so the Cold War became for for them uh, basically a love spat between between the Trotskyites and the uh, Stalin uh, and, and the Stalin. 
communist, the mm. variety of communism. Wow. Well, I, I want to move on to another topic. Our time's getting away. But I want to talk sure. about something that gets closer to some of your other core writings that you've done. And that's defining some additional terms for our listeners to chew on. They've, they've certainly had not, uh, not nearly enough deep, uh, topics or concepts already. So yeah. we'll get, we'll lay some more on them. Enough softball, the, guys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the concepts of scientism and technocracy. Can you explain what they are and how they relate to these movements and, and how, how does it handle concepts like human liberty and dignity? Sure. Well, basically, scientism is the fetishization of science. It holds that science uh, should be uh, ecumenically imposed upon all fields of inquiry. Um, and while the modern mind, chronocentric as it is, might consider such an imposition desirable, the truth of the matter is, is that science as a system of quantification, because that's fundamentally what it is, it deals uh, predominantly with systems of me measurement, as a system of quantification, it can only concern itself with uh, quantifiable entities. Thus, whatever cannot be quantified must be jettisoned, must be uh, precluded from purely scientific considerations. And that means that uh, concepts such as human liberty, dignity, the sanctity of life, and, of course, uh, God, a transcendent real a spiritual reality, all these things must be jettisoned. Um, now, scientism... One of, uh, one of the uh, areas that scientism holds should uh, uh, see the uh, ecumenical imposition of science upon is none other than the areas of political science and governance. And when you basically have the scientifically uh, uh, arranged state, which uh, Aldous Huxley called the uh, scientific dictatorship, uh, basically what you have is a technocracy. And the technocracy is a rule by a cognitive elite ruled by those who rule according to by virtue of their specialized knowledge policy professionals uh, individuals who simply uh, have the cognitive capacity that you and I and the, all the other uh, vulgar unwashed uh, commoners do not have and so they by virtue of their specialized knowledge must rule now hey, this, uh, wait, wait a second I have a PhD in science would I could I be one of the ruling elite or Am I stuck down with just the rest so of the unwashed? You do, you do just so long say. as you do not deviate from the status quo, you know? Just so long as you subscribe to what all the other so-called specialists and policy professionals subscribe to. If you had a problem, for instance, with, say, mm, uh, evolution, well, you couldn't, yeah. you couldn't take part in this government because they view, uh, evo uh, they view evolution on an ecumenical level, on a universal level. They view uh, uh, all forms of governance as a corresponding political evolution to our, our uh, alleged biological evolution. Oh. And if you, if you subscribe to certain other scientific paradigms, that make room, say, for uh, a certain theistic worldview, say Christianity, mm -hmm. well, evidently you probably wouldn't have much of a place cause you, uh, in this sort of uh, government because you're not, you're, not uh, you're, you're deviating from the status quo, the scientific status quo. So even though they are science background, they may revere in words the scientific method, but they also revere even more so political correctness in their own paradigm. And sure. even even though I may say they don't have all of the data to take something from a hypothesis to theory to law, they add the political component to it where they move directly to the law and, and squash any kind of dissenting uh, scientific approach, which is actually counter to the classic scientific method. 
Absolutely. That is absolutely true. And as a result, you have kind of this tyranny of institutionally accredited science, and it becomes kind of its own theocracy because scientists merely become priests who don lab coats and uh, act as the chief expositors of miracles, signs, and wonders, <laughs> a la test tubes and uh, beakers. And uh, the, the uh, scientific uh, jargon of the day becomes an esoteric vernacular that is uh, basically chanted off almost like uh, hymns and like uh, uh, vespers. And uh, the, all the rest of the unwashed, vulgar masses just cannot apprehend these things. And so they must be, they must be kept low. They must be uh, governed. And that's, that's essentially what technocracy is. And that was what the Enlightenment uh, was uh, attempting to achieve, was a technocratic form of governance or scientific dictatorship. Was the whole idea of the bureaucracy part of the outgrowth of technocracy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Bureaucracy is integral to uh, technocracy. Com just uh, ex vast uh, compartmentalization, very much uh, integral to uh, the concept of technocracy. Um, because uh, essentially through compartmentalization, uh, you have a, a way of diffusing, uh, you know, diffusing uh, power enough so as to uh, basically nullify any grassroots efforts hmm. to uh, dethrone the, techno the, the uh, technocratic elite. We see they do know about inertia, the concepts, and they know if they put enough ballast, a bureaucratic ballast, that should stop any kind of uprisings of truth that might come against Absolutely. it. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, this is, a, this is a bitter pill for me to swallow. I have to explain to you because I have been one to be a proponent for particularly young Christians getting involved in the sciences, um, I, I did not go into biological sciences, so I didn't have the issues to face with uh, professors about evolution and about some of these other issues. The engineering field is, a, is relatively straightforward. Uh, in fact, I even found nestled in some uh, thermodynamics text and engineering some admission that things like the second laws of thermodynamics are basically concessions about a, a creator in the universe. Right. Uh, really? I tucked in some secular wow. textbooks at a secular university. But I have tried to encourage more young people to go into these fields uh, simply because um, there are people who are not being reached within technical environments uh, in, in other prof similar pr you know, uh, professions that are not hearing the gospel, and they need to be reached by people. And I find a lot of our Christian universities uh, are just simply choosing not to offer uh, subject areas. There's, there's only maybe two, at most three, Christian universities in the country I know that even offer an engineering program. Really? And it's almost like they've thrown their hands up and said there's no way we can reach these people. But what it sounds like to me is they need to get in the middle of the fray and fight these things out. What, what, what you explained here is not just an abstract philosophical concept. I, I see it working regularly, and any other scientist-type person uh, would agree with me on this. When it comes to the point of trying to get government grants or other kind of grant money, uh, you find somewhat there's technical principles that are used to evaluate uh, ideas, concepts, and proposals, but political correctness, even within the technical community, always trumps uh, other factors and considerations in, in being able to get uh, uh, money for universities or for other researchers to do work. And they always have a cause du jour that's been politically approved by those above. And then the scientists will factor rationale after the fact to justify that. 
So that's how I see uh, your premise actually working today, even within investments that are made within the research community. Absolutely. And just a little disclaimer, um, by scientism, I'm not referring to legitimate science, mm-hmm. which which uh, has a place in the study of natural phenomena. I am uh, basically dissuading people from the fetishization of science and just understanding that science has its own proper place within a hierarchy of knowledge and that science in and of itself cannot uh, represent the sum totality of reality. Um, science deals with quantifiable entities, deals with what is empirically verifiable, but because science cannot deal with suprasensible entities, cannot deal with uh, uh, considerations that are outside uh, empirical analysis, science cannot be considered the ultimate and only uh, uh, measuring stick for defining reality. And that's what uh, those of the scientistic paradigm do. They basically mm-hmm. believe that science is the universal uh, expositor of truth and as uh, such can be just used uh, in uh, questions of ethics, of morality, and of governance and of political science. And as a result, that's where we have the majority of uh, totalitarian regimes of the 20th century coming from today. The, the uh, Marx, uh, Marxist variety of uh, socialism was referred to by uh, Frederick Engels as scientific socialism, mainly because it was based on the scientific premises of uh, empiricism, which is the epistemological position that all knowledge is derived exclusively from the senses, and thus all suprasensible phenomena and suprasensible entities were completely precluded from Marxism, namely God, namely the human spirit, and dignity and liberty, all these things that were not quantifiable entities were completely precluded, and that's the pitfall of scientism. Mm-hmm. Scientism basically revu- reduces man to nothing more than a soulless mm-hmm. meat machine. Well, it also reduces their capability to be good scientists. Some of the most famous scientists that have contributed most uh, to their field had a relationship with God. I'm thinking about right. uh, Newton, mm-hmm. Blaise Pascal, a number of other famous people. They most a lot of those of them wrote a lot about, well, about God. Most yeah. of those gentlemen, their primary pursuit was the pursuit of the nature of God. And as a subset of that, they looked into science to find further elaborations to help their understanding of who God was. And that's the proper relationship of things, and that's what's been cut off. And what's interesting in the example you give with the Soviet Union is by divorcing themselves of the revelatory uh, opportunities through a relationship with a creator God, that limited their capability to benefit and bless their own people. That That cut off the capability for God's blessing to even work within their own brilliant people. And, and the Russian people are, are just brilliant. But mm-hmm. they were severely handicapped when they were given or taken away that the uh, the spiritual component of their lives to be able to see that illumination from God. But if you'll notice, it also made it quite easy for individuals like Joseph Stalin and uh, V.I. Lenin to become, within their own little world, gods, gods unto themselves. Mm-hmm. That's why it comes, again, this all goes back to the Enlightenment tradition, which in turn comes out of uh, Gnostic thinking. The idea is the enthronement of man, the the apotheosis of man, basically to divorce man from the Creator so that man becomes 
his own God. And that's essentially what atheism is. Atheism is not so much the rejection of God uh, as it is a segue, a philosophical segue, for the uh, supplanting of God by man. Because as Malcolm Muggeridge himself, who used to be an atheist, said, when uh, you when you get rid of God, somebody has to take his place. And invariably, who is that? Mm-hmm. Invariably, it's man himself. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, though, that you point out that um, that that it actually led to a, uh, a a a retardation of progress. Right. When when mm-hmm. it uh, in the Soviet Union, when it was supposed to be. Uh, when it was supposed to bring about progress, that there was supposed to yeah, that's the, the the nobody understood and appreciated this more than the power elite here in the United States, and that's why we see several leading lights within the power elite uh, actually uh, funding the Bolsheviks. Primary amongst those funding the Bolsheviks were, were none, was none other than uh, than Rockefeller because he knew that it would re- retard uh, technological. And and um, uh, scientific progress over over in uh, Russia would retard industrial pro- progress, and that's what he wanted at the time because mm-hmm. the the czar was uh, the czar was a very repressive ruler, and and nobody's going to argue that here. But the truth of the matter is is that um, he was heading them in a direction where they were about to be. On par with the U, with the United States, and thus on par with the uh, Western faction of the elite. When the Bolsheviks came to power, all those oil fields just sat idle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they they mm-hmm. were neglected all of a sudden, and the and the, the ha- half of those oil wells weren't even it weren't even touched, and and uh, industry sw- uh, slowed to a crawl. Until uh, uh, Rockefeller and some of his capitalist mm-hmm. friends could actually Hammer. get in there. Yeah, mm-hmm. Arm and Hammer. Yeah, yeah. So he was. So he knew how to hamstring them, basically, for his own purposes. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I find what's interesting is that uh, when we see their documents in hindsight in the last days of the Soviet Union, they were able to basically uh, grudgingly admit their shortcomings because then they started investing in all sorts of bizarre. Uh, spiritual things like psychics and other mm. kind of things that we find where they almost admitted the failure of their whole system in that they did that route, but it was in a real Mickey Mouse fashion. Uh, you know, rather than looking on revealed truth, you know, developed over millennia between God and man, they start doing these kind of things. We need to wrap up. We're coming up to the end, yeah. and I'm afraid our listeners are going to be left with a cliffhanger because I wanted to promise them that we were going to start talking about some specific names and movements today. Uh, with this, but there's just simply too much material We're here. We're going to have to keep that for a different show, I think. And I, I, I want to know if you would be willing to come back later this summer and take Absolutely. on part two yeah. of our discussion. Yeah, this is, sure, too, sure. This is too good to leave to one one discussion. Well, I, I, I've decided that I would rather you give these kind of subjects the treatment they deserve uh, rather than trying to rush them through and say we completed yeah. something. So if you don't yeah. mind, I'd like to have you back. But you're bringing, your, your discussion of uh, scientism and technocracy obviously must touch on the book uh, that you have uh, written called The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship. In, in about a minute, could you just give us a, a quick understanding of the premise and where our listeners can get that book and yeah. find your other writings? 
Yeah, sure. Well, basically, the overall premise of the ascendancy of the scientific dictatorship is that the uh, older theocratic power structures of antiquity, namely those uh, in Mesopotamia 6,000 years ago in Babylon and Egypt, uh, found uh, a source of continuity in the technocratic forms of governments of governance uh, in the 20th century and going into the 21st century with communism, with fascism, and now with uh, the synthesis of uh, all forms of socialism and uh, capitalism in the West and what we see in the emergent uh, New World Order today. Uh, people who are interested in picking up a copy can do so just by visiting Amazon.com. You want the 2006 Book Surge Edition. You do not want the 2003 uh, iUniverse Edition because the 2006 Book Surge Edition is the one with the most updated and extensive uh, information. Okay. And uh, I'm certainly a breezy read. They can probably get through in an afternoon? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I challenge anyone to get, through, Steelbook or something, to get right? through one of your articles <laughs> in more than a week. Uh, thank you so much for being yeah, with us. Yeah, you guys are great. Uh, I really, we, we'd like to have you back regularly. I think this is a gang of four that really works here. Yeah, um, I agree. Much more than t- for the Chinese. Uh, our audience, <laughs> you know, they have their gang of four. It didn't turn out so well. Uh, so we'd love to have you back again. Um Times are a change, and we've got big things happening all around us. And you, you two, are just the kind of guys that can all put it in uh, proper perspective for us and help educate us on on a background and explain what we're seeing right now. I know our listeners appreciate you and what you're doing. I wholly, I wholeheartedly encourage everyone to get your book. But uh, we're going to have to say goodbye to now. But I just want to thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we're going to hold you on your word to come back here again uh, yeah, in another. You guys uh, are on the hook. Another now. month or two, okay? That's good. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely do. We'll have to talk about the CMP next time and uh, start naming some names. If you know Ooh. what I mean. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna wear out a hole in the carpet here, pacing back and forth, waiting <laughs> for that one. Ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a treat. I didn't mean to leave the cliffhanger, but uh, this is some essential education uh, that the Collins brothers are giving us here. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we thank look forward you. to having you back again very very soon. Outstanding. Thank okay. you so much. Well, yeah. thank you again. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Bye bye. Welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. And it's great to be back with everybody today. Uh, yeah. This is a time when we do what we call tomorrow's tremors mm-hmm. or today's review of the future's news. Mm-hmm. As we've stated many times before, this is something where we uh, sort of sit back and catch our breath for the week and catch up on our review of the news, maybe some other information that we get mm-hmm. our hands on. Some stuff that uh, you may not typically have heard of or seen in your, in your local newspapers, but uh, some stuff that might be of interest to you. And that's the whole mission of this show is to talk about things people aren't hearing elsewhere in the media and particularly not on Christian radio mm-hmm. and provide a form. And, you know, you and I have often wondered if sometimes uh, if people sort of tolerate us on Fridays to get to the interviews the rest of the week. But it sounds like people maybe even enjoy this. Yeah. Uh, Amazing. It's anecdotally, a lot of my coworkers who would probably not listen to WNO, I wouldn't think, uh, have been listening. Even though it's a fine radio a, show, you might say radio. Station. No, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not knocking WNO. <laughs> I know what you meant. Um, I, let's, let me make this clear. I forget how you have to explain everything clearly in radio. I'm just not good at that. Yeah, they're not standing there in front of us. I know. You know? I know. It's All terrible. of our wonderful friends on the airwaves. I make that mistake about once a week too. It's oh, terrible. Well, it's all right. Anyway, uh, I have some friends, coworkers, and they are beginning to listen to WNO and. Um, 
it's not it's not a it's not a broadcaster station they would typically listen to because of the programming. Mm-hmm. But I think they're finding it really interesting and informative. And uh, I would actually encourage our listeners to actually bring some of these things up to their uh, to their coworkers. So you're finding what we talk about here is good water cooler information to break oh, yes. the ice to talk about mm-hmm. things. Well, and in fact, when I you know when I'm out meeting new people, you know, meeting new clients and stuff, I pretty much just start bringing up right off the back things like Nephilim. And, uh, that's always a know, good, yeah, good thing to warm up the really, crowd. Hey, how you doing? Yeah. So, have you heard any good research about the Nephilim lately? Yeah. Tell me about Dominionism. Do you get a lot of good feedback about that? I pretty much get blank stares. It's like Larry, yeah. Daryl, and Daryl. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Life's good with the blank stares. Well, e- anyway, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we just thank you so much for your support. And in fact. Um, we have some feedback from some email. We've been asking people for weeks to send mm-hmm. in emails about what you think about the show with our new format, uh, Radical Overhaul, our show mm-hmm. for our, our new opportunities uh, here on radio. And uh, would that be okay if I share with you a little bit, some brief comments? I was actually going to say, well, don't just tell us about it. Why don't you read some? All right. All right. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much, particularly those of you who have taken the time to get back with us. I want to encourage other people. Here's the first one uh, from someone, I believe their name is pronounced Nace. Uh, N-A-C-E, mm-hmm. and they're actually listening in Bowling Green, Kentucky. That's great. Which is, you know, that's at least a, a good hour or so away I know. from our transmitter site. So It's awesome. It's it's spreading, you know, I just know, like a staph infection across the I was going to say, we're a virus. Yeah. We've gone viral, Dr. That's Richard. right. That sounds good. <laughs> I think that's good. That's what I've heard. Yeah. That's sort of a hip phrase. They say, uh, uh, Nason Bowling Green says, hello, Dr. Future. Uh, I heard your show last night for the first time and then checked out your website today. I like it. Uh, well, I was glad to hear that. Uh, and then they mentioned a guest to consider, a Samuel J. Hunt, who's written a book called Epistem Scientica or Scientifica. I don't know. I'll have to practice saying it before I invite them on. I'm glad you always get the hard ones, man. Yeah, I think the, I think our listeners are you know are going to try to give some Russian Maybe scientist names. Maybe Episteme Scientica. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds good to me, okay. Tom. Uh, the Law of All uh, on Amazon, and who, who actually is a senior at Western Kentucky University uh, that wrote this. And uh, he gives a lecture at Western Kentucky uh, entitled Science Proves Creation. And he has a unified field theory demonstrating how science experiments over the last 30 years prove mathematical relationships between sound, frequency, and matter, so that when God spoke everything in existence, this is why it happened. We might uh, mention that book to yeah. one, of our, one, yeah. of our, one of our friends there. Sure, and uh, it's at uh, scienceprovescreation.com. Yeah, David Lowe. Yeah, going on show. that's a great David idea. Yeah. Get, get them hooked up together. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Nace, thank you so much. Please be a regular listener. If you're on campus there, um, go on and uh, tell other people. If not, uh, if you're there in the community, please let your other folks uh, let you hang out with the church know about the show. Here's another quick one from Linda. Uh, it does not have a location here. just says, uh, found your audio archives and love your show. As far as guests for your show, you might try Richard Stout from the book and website, The Cursed Net. I also suggest mm. Chuck Missler and Dave Hunt. You know, Chuck is somebody I've mentioned we might want to get on. I've Chuck Missler's had a, quite a few votes on here, so yeah, we'll go on. And even though we'll he called me Dr. Futile, we'll, we'll go on and get him ranged up. I even have an idea for a topic I want him to talk oh, about. Oh, really? Which Ooh. I don't want. Yeah, it's one that is near and dear to his heart, but I don't think he gets to talk about it much, so we'll okay. have him on here. Also, too, uh, this, this makes me a little nostalgic. Linda said, loves the uh, music for meditation. Which was we did in our old format. Yeah, it was a love hate kind of thing. Yeah, for for our new listeners, we don't do. We used to do this thing called music for meditation on the half hour. Play a little.
little song. It was just, just in lieu you, of commercial breaks. Yeah, let, we had. Kind of di- let, let you digest the information a little bit. We don't With the new shorter format, we don't do that. Yeah, but it, was, we might. it was a little stranger. It wasn't quite as mainstream as we are yeah. now. You and I are the yeah. white bread. Uh, you well, know, we might get you to sing something later. Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> you never know, ladies and gentlemen, if we... We get a break sometime. We might sneak something in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we are more prone to do is our people do a song or write together a little song about us for our show. I'm sure we can find time to put them in. Somebody mm-hmm. just sent one on some new fan of ours, and it's an awesome song. I'm going to be playing that here pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. You were telling me about that. Uh, this is another one from uh, Tom, who's uh, up in Adams, Tennessee. Mm. Uh, subject, uh, uh, tremors were spot on today, which is nice to hear. Another comment Great. about our, our news uh, segment, uh, and uh, they refer to you here. Tom doesn't know who Mr. French is. Who's Mr. French? Dr. Future, we are old. You remember me mentioning you about, uh, actually, it's uh, Mr. French was the butler on Family Affair, the TV show. Oh, yeah, I remember, I remember that conversation. Show. Yeah, I still don't know who he is. Did you do a Wikipedia search on Family Affair? I actually promptly forgot. I've got so many other weird things going on right now. Well, that's much more important than the other topics we talk about on this yes. show. Yes. I just got a few more real quick. I got some, some short ones. This is something that uh, Chris in Hendersonville uh, actually sent a notice to the station and uh, CC'd us on it. They, they said uh, to our radio station here, I want to... I say I find the afternoon program future quite very interesting. I've been a Christian for many years, and the issues discussed on the show provoke me to broaden my perspective on prophecy, scripture, and following Jesus. Pierce's station responded to that, so well, that thank was you, good. Chris. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, thank you very much, Chris. I, I appreciate that very much. And uh, here's another one uh, whose first name was Christian, which is a great name to have on our show here. There you go. Uh, Christian, thank you so much for uh, uh, sending some info here. They actually mentioned uh, interviewing Dr. Robert, and I don't know how to pronounce the name, Sungenus. Sungenus. That's good, too. Sungenus. Author of many books, most recently St. John's Apocalypse. He's spoken on the end times, the world elite, and forces behind the issues of our times. I don't know. Would that be of any interest to us, that, that topic area? You know, probably not. I was going to focus more on <laughs> recipes. Uh, I guess we could make an exception and talk about those subjects here. So, see if i got another quick one here. Aaron um, says, Hi, Dr. Future and Tom. Uh, Hi, Aaron. Yeah. Uh, I thought I'd email you both about Reverend Lindsey Williams. Uh, he claims there's enough oil in Alaska to take care of oil, America's oil issues for the next 200 years. Uh, the oil's comparable to Saudi Arabia. I had found his uh, videos about him. So that's something I love the new format, and both of you are great. Well, thank you, Aaron. Yeah. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, if you just want to like cut and paste that, uh, love the new format, both of you are great. Uh, that, mm-hmm. Those are our, some of our favorite comments, right? Yeah, yeah. All of our listeners, just grab that and send it. Yeah. Uh, no, actually, you tell us that there's things you don't care for. In fact, um, the last couple of emails I want to mention and our time's getting away, so I want to come back some later time and talk about these last couple of emails in general. But I just want to give a shout-out to the people who took the time to email them to us to let you know we acknowledge them and we appreciate your comments. And we might want to spend a, uh, more time, as time permits, uh, reviewing them. Uh, there was one that was sent in from someone that goes by Constantinos, yeah. talking about the role of the church. And, uh, again, they start out in, in uh, great uh, love, saying, My dear friend, Dr. Future, do not doubt your love and dedication to the Lord Jesus. Right. If I did, I wouldn't write. It's an honest, this honest and true love for Jesus is what makes me try to convince you of things that are not the way they are presented to you by others that, unfortunately, were also misinformed. And um, I'll just do a very quick summary, although I, to be fair to this person, it's always bad when you summarize stuff because I don't mean to trivialize it. Sure. It's, he, this person put a considerable amount of effort writing in about uh, the value of tradition in mm-hmm. the church. 
mm-hmm. and uh, sort of the theological underpinnings in it. Yeah, I haven't uh, I haven't seen that till now, so maybe I'll yeah, I haven't seen it. So spin. we'll we'll take a we'll take a look. Maybe we can yeah. make some other comments on it. But I just want to give you a thanks out for taking the effort to putting this information out and getting it to us. You know, our understanding we stand on the Word of God firmly. Oh yes. the Word of God is the Word of Truth. But our our understanding of it is something that continues to grow, and hopefully will continue. Uh, so indubitably, we hope that. Uh, yeah, as well as our vocabulary, <laughs> and we we hope that uh, we will continue to grow as well. So we're uh, we may be talking some more about that email in particular. Uh, also, I uh, got an email out from James, uh, and I don't see the location. I seem to think it was North Carolina, but if I got this wrong, this was a this was a very detailed information from someone who had spent some time uh, uh, in the military yeah. and had spent some time uh, talking, basically an expression of thanks for. Uh, uh, the, the work of our soldiers and others and, and what they've mm-hmm. done. And uh, that's another one that was extremely long, and we need to go back and look at yeah. detail, maybe comment further. But I want to thank you, James, for sending that yes. to me. Sorry for, for all that. But no, 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 that's good. I think we need to recognize the, our listeners who do write in. We appreciate it, and we try to read everything you send us. I consider our, I consider our comments from our sophisticated and intelligent listeners much more valuable than the drivel we talk about today. Oh, well, and speaking that of goes drivel, without, goes yeah, without yeah, saying. <laughs> Do you have a story for us, brother, brother Tom? You're getting better and better at the one-liner and sort of bizarre segue. It's it's it's, it's you're getting real good. Is that right? It's you're you're I, I this commend is the you. drivel segment. I commend you. Quake. Your drivel is getting par excellence. Okay. Well, lay a story on us. All though. right. Uh, this one is actually from Reuters. Uh, it's it's entitled "Young Evangelicals Aim to Broaden Agenda." Matt Dunbar is not your typical evangelical Christian. With his tussled hair, sideburns, and a scruffy soul patch beard, the 26-year-old New Yorker belongs to a growing minority of young evangelicals who want to broaden their political agenda beyond the traditional opposition of abortion and gay marriage. Evangelicals like Dunbar are eager to move on and tackle such hot topics as global warming and social justice. As they move to the center of the political spectrum, they are deciding whether Republican presidential candidate John McCain or Democrat Barack Obama aligns best with their values and deserve their role, uh, their vote in the November presidential election. A former Republican, Dunbar's political views began to change with the war in Iraq. I could keep my political affiliation with the Republican Party at that point. I couldn't keep my political affiliation with the Republican Party at that point. I don't know what's going on with me today. So just whatever you say, put a minus sign in front of it. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know. It's not quite dyslexia. It's, it's uh, antonym Moonbadia or something. Okay. I don't know. Right. Research shows many young white evangelical Christians are moving away from the Republican Party. Surveys by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life show a 15% drop in the allegiance of white evangelicals aged 18 to 29 with the Republican Party over the past two years. This group is going to definitely to be definitely worth watching, said Dan Cox, a Pew Research associate and author of the report. If anything, they're becoming more independent in their outlook. Most favor stricter laws to protect the environment, for example, an issue not typically associated with Republican platforms, yet remain conservative on issues like opposition to abortion and support for the death penalty. Several hundred young evangelicals gathered last week at Princeton University in New Jersey to meet with Christian leaders. Discuss, discuss the evangelical agenda and look at the role of religion in public life. The conference was the conference was called Envision: The Gospel, Politics, and the Future. Tattoos, scruffy hair, flip-flops abounded among the young attendees. Sharon Claiborne, 
author of The Irresistible Revolution, Living as an Ordinary Radical, called on young Christians to get politically and personally involved on issues of justice. Can I ask you something? Yes. The, the, the kind of garb that you expl- described there, uh-huh. sort of a college-type bohemian kind of look. Yes, not still, Bohemian Grove, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Your statement is still is being associated with... Uh, socially conservative causes in terms of uh, social issues. Yes, particularly. But, but they're just subsuming or adding in uh, environmental issues as well as to, you know, these others like abortion or things like that, right? I would think so. Although my guess is my guess is it has much more to do than just the environment. I would, you know, I would venture to say that with moving away from the Republican Party, they're uh, looking at all sorts of different okay. different things. But that's just my $2 take on Sorry it. Sorry to interrupt. That's okay. I'll take it out of your paycheck. Hmm. <laughs> One in four Americans consider themselves evangelical Christians, and some four-fifths of evangelical voters back Republican President George W. Bush as he sought re-election in 2004. McCain is regarded with suspicion in conservative evangelical circles because of his past support for stem cell research, his failure to support a federal ban on gay marriage, and his support for immigration reform, among other things. Both McCain and Obama will be hard-pressed to attract voters like Tanya Grant, a 23-year-old Bible college student from New Jersey, who said she voted for Bush in 2004. It seems like he, uh, McCain, is playing the evangelical Jesus card, she said. But she's not so she's not sold on Obama either, and he doesn't fit. And she doesn't favor his health care reform proposals. I'm completely torn, she says. Amy Coffin, 27, of Los Angeles, said she was drawn to Obama because of his health care plan and desire to end the war in Iraq. She does not align herself with any political party and is critical of how so many evangelicals support Bush. I think a lot of that is apathy and laziness, letting people tell them how to vote. She is not looking to the election to further social change, but is pushing for change in her own life. A year ago, she moved to India, where she is helping to start a church in New Delhi. Hopefully, by living with the poor, you end up doing something with social justice just naturally. And that's it. You know, and they they mentioned about uh, what are they going to do between their choice of the two candidates. Mm -hmm. If they're broadening their view of things, how come they're not broadening their range of candidates they'll consider to be honest to? And, and, you know, we've, of course, had discussions uh, off air about uh, the dearth of great political... um, third-party candidates with Chuck Baldwin and Bob Barr and, uh, you know, Ron Paul was sort of a th- almost right, a third-party right. candidate, even within the Republican right. Party. That's where people need to be thinking out of the box. Yes. And I'm not trying to tell somebody to vote for one person in particular, but you know what I would just think would be great? If people on the left, right, middle, everywhere could all just sort of agree on a handshake and say, just to teach these guys all a lesson, let's everybody vote third-party this year. The third-party of your choice. Third-party of your choice. That sounds good to me. Just I've actually been running that scam here for the last several years. I, oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, I, I would think it would just be something great that all of us citizens could do to show them who's boss. Mm-hmm. Say, we're going to set you all down in the timeout box for four years. I'm cool with you that. Know? I think you may have hit on a very, very good idea. And just let everybody left, right, others say, you know, we've been made enemies long enough mm-hmm. by these guys who have invested in We have been in balkanized, and we're going to yeah. change that. Yeah, and uh, we're going to get somebody in there, maybe somebody obscure enough that hasn't been bought off yet, and uh, could it be worse? That's what I wonder. I, I can't imagine. You could get Paul Pot, you know, that's about it. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I, I, I remember <laughs> good old Paul. Paul Pot. Yeah. Um, well, you've got a story for us now. I've got a story for us. Oh, uh, I'm looking forward to this one. I always read these really uh, like gloomy skies, falling mm-hmm. ones. Government planned military analyst in media. Uh, this is from Alternet 
which sounds pretty far out, except that they're just taking it from other news wires. Mm-hmm. It says that uh, 8,000 pages of documents related to the Pentagon's illegal propaganda campaign, known as the Pentagon Military Analyst Program, are now online for the world to see, although in a format that makes it impossible to easily search them and therefore difficult to read and dissect. Uh, this trove includes documents pried out of the Pentagon by David Barstow and uses the basis for his stunning investigation that appeared in the New York Times on April 20th of this year. The Pentagon program, which clearly violated U.S. law against covert government propaganda, embedded more than 75 retired military officers, most of them with financial ties to war contractors, into the TV networks as, quote, message surrogates, unquote, for the Bush administration. So I want to I just get this straight. What you're saying is, is the... The current administration co-opted a bunch of people to uh, spin their own agenda in the media networks. Is that what they're saying? Yeah, they they put in disguised as quote unbiased analysts that usually sit on these panels, you know, mm-hmm. on the news. And let, let me just say a preamble for, before some of you all turn off your radio dials. Yeah, I don't want you to think this is some kind of like super. Uh, leftist attack on anything that no. resolves around one political party. Believe me, um, they said if you knew my kind of credentials, I I supported the war when it happened. I supported it for a long, long time, and I've been a really relatively recent person to just ask questions. I'm not trying to say anything other than I'm giving a second look at some of this information. Mm-hmm. And I would say whether you are on the left, right, Republican, Democrat, whatever you are, you any suppose, administration, whichever you party they go are. To, uh, you know, if you went to, uh, where does this come from, Alternate? A L T E R N E T dot They just they compile yeah. uh you know articles from other news yeah. But um any any political party, whoever they are, well, that would actually try to ma- manipulate one of the other pillars of our society or free press, uh, under the guise of trying to manipulate us. Maybe I'm the most naive person here. Of, of our whole audience, but because yeah, I know that this goes on a lot, but I mean they had a formally published program specifically to do this, mm-hmm. and I don't care who the party is in power or what's going on. I'm offended at that. Me too. I, you know, I, I almost see this as um, information warfare on our own public. Yeah, that's that's what they do in war. They yeah. go in to attack another place. They start mm-hmm. sending in. Uh, false information mm-hmm. onto the other people to get them confused, mm-hmm. to to uh, confuse the enemy, to do all these other kind of things. And they're experts at learning how to do that. Mm-hmm. But now it looks like they're turning and doing the same stuff on us. Now, not to say that there haven't always been administration representatives of every administration that go out there and sell their cause. They have think tanks of their sure, favorites. Sure, but they're clearly, they're clearly denominated as such. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, this, this, but this was a formal program underway mm-hmm. specifically not to go sell the position of the administration as the administration, but to for- disguise it intentionally. Okay. Uh, well, to, let's, let's hear more, man. Okay. Uh, news of the Pentagon's online posting of the documents came from Joe Trento. Uh, of the National Security News Service, who notes that uh, NSNS uh, provided the New York Times limited information about a military office early in the reporting process. Um, it says here, to, de- uh, to date, every major commercial TV network has failed to report this story, covering up their complicity and keeping the existence of this scandal from their audiences. Really? Um, the official, yeah, the official Pentagon website is www.dod.mil forward slash pubs forward slash foi forward slash mill analysts forward slash and they have 8,000 pages of documents the most interesting uh, and revealing of them previously secret and only available to the Pentagon and the New York Times 
for more than two weeks after the New York Times reported on the Pentagon's military analyst program to sell controversial policies such as the invasion of Iraq, the broadcast television news outlets implicated in the program are hoping to tough out the scandal by refusing to report it. Recently, Media Matters of America, uh, let's see here, uh, said reported that according to a search of the Nexus database, the three major broadcast networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, still have not mentioned a report at all. The Pew Excellence in Journalism Project has a chart showing that there is virtually no mainstream media follow-up to the Times expose, with only national TV coverage being the introduction segment and live debate uh, on the PBS NewsHour. Uh, Congressman Rosa DeLauro uh, and three dozen colleagues have sent a letter to the Department of Defense Inspector General calling for an investigation of this propaganda campaign aimed at deliberately misleading the American public. So there you go. Wow, that's um, that's heavy. I'm trying to get all the implications together with my in my head. Well, I'm just afraid people react their first gut reaction like, I'll hear somebody wailing against the war sure. or whatever like that. That's not no, the point no, no, of this story. The point of this story is that I know they've always manipulated the media. The media in general, excluding you and me of course, yeah. are are not the the sharpest sticks in the bunch. Oh no, I'll I'll I'll, I'll wear that moniker. But well, you know, but, but on a, on another tangent, we as mm-hmm. Christians ought to be we have a little more savvy. We have an additional burden to really... I don't mean we're elitists or better anybody, but I mean we've had the opposite effect. I think yeah. we, and I speak for myself, I have swallowed more stuff naively like than the average person with just a general common sense. It's like drinking chlorinated water, you know. You drink chlorinated water for a long time, and then all of a sudden one day... You uh, drink some unchlorinated water for a while, and you go, wow, you know, something's different. You already got me on this thing about watching out for fluoride. Now it's chlorine. Now it's chlorine. Is it? Is it that? Well, enti- I can taste the difference. It's it's a weird thing. Is it the entire column seven of the periodic table? That I I've would got say to avoid probably right column now? seven and column eight. Okay, iodine. I've got to avoid that now. Yes. And astatine. All of those things. Okay. Wow. Well, you know, it's funny because my uh, my former life, my career was to get rid of those exact chemicals mm-hmm. in fire extinguishing chemicals because they supposedly attacked ozone molecules. Really? Yeah. And but they're so. What you're saying is now we're drinking them, or <laughs> we've been drinking them long before then. We need to leave. Oh boy! Uh, it's already that time. I can't Ooh, believe boy. it went by that we, quick. We rolled way too quick. Uh, Merv, give us a uh, quick word and let us know how our listeners can give us some feedback about the show. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the shows, topics, or guests, or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We are overdue. Okay. Tom, thank you so much for being here today. And you too. It was good. Listeners, thank you for being the star of our show. Thank you for making a purse out of a sal's ear of our information we provide oink, you. Oink, oink. <laughs> and uh, we'll expect to see you back next week for the next edition of the Future Quake Show. Sign on. Okay. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake. quake.